Do you have money fights with your spouse? Stop lying. Of course you do. We all do. You're not fooling anyone. (laughs) Our guest today, wealth manager and author of Making Money Simple, Mr. Peter Lazaroff shares how even though he helps clients with money for a living, he still faced his biggest challenge when it came to getting on the same page with his wife about their money at home. The Legendary Marriage Podcast begins now. If you're feeling more like roommates than soulmates, it's time for the Legendary Marriage Podcast. Every couple wants to have a great marriage, but the trials and challenges of life pull us in different directions. So we talk with amazing couples who share their stories and incredible experts who share their wisdom about building a life together. And at the end of every show, we give you a conversation starter so you and your spouse can build more intimacy and connection in your marriage by having conversations that matter. Welcome to the show. This is episode 154. We're your hosts, Danielle and Justin Williams. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Good Lord. (laughs) Okay. So I am, I've got to run something very controversial by you. What? And I know this is out of the blue. Okay, bring it. I've been listening to a couple podcasts lately, and this has come up twice. Okay. So... Is it infidelity? Oh, good grief. To watch a Netflix show. Yes. Without you. Yes. If it's a show I want to watch, yes. What if it's a show that we... It is your marital duty, your wifely obligation (laughs) to check before you start watching Gilmore Girls again. Yes, I want to watch it. Like what? Okay, what if it's a new show that I'm... What if it's a new... Why are you looking for loopholes? What about The Ranch? The only way I could answer that would require me to go back in and bleep. (laughs) Right? So you think it is infidelity if I watch Netflix shows without you? Yeah, if it's a show I want to see. Okay. What if you're out of town? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It doesn't count. It was over the pants. What? (laughs) It's ridiculous. Okay, so... What does this have to do with anything? This has to do with a serious issue we are facing in marriages today. What? Um, And if you want to build a legendary marriage... Okay, I'm going to say this is not one of the secrets. I'm going to say this is pretty basic. If you're talking about fidelity or an infidelity, yeah, they know. I'm like, t- everybody listening is pretty much assuming, assuming that screwing around doesn't lead to a legendary marriage. Or watching Netflix shows without your spouse. Yeah. Okay. Well, we do have the seven secrets of a legendary marriage. And if you want to know what they are, hint, it has nothing to do with Netflix. I'll tell you right now. The first one is... What? Just, just check it out at legendarymarriage.com. The number seven... Slash, wait, let's try this again. Legendarymarriage.com slash seven secrets. Yes. Get it there. You'll find out what they are. It's a great free resource to give you a little uh, hitch in your step when it comes to going home and working on rebuilding or building a great marriage. So one of the hot button topics that we all have to deal with in our marriage, money. Money, money, money. So we dive into um, how do we get on the same page with our spouse. And make money simple. Yeah, make money simple with Peter Lazaroff today. It's a great conversation. Um, he also wrote a book around the same topic, Making Money Simple. Yeah. Um, so great. let's, yeah, let's get right let's on dive in. to it. 
All right. We have Peter Lazaroff on the show today, CFA and CFP. That means he knows what he's talking about when it gets to money. He is a financial advisor, a speaker, and even author of his brand new book, Making Money Simple. And he's going to talk to the legendary marriage crew about all the stuff that we need. The legendary marriage crew? I don't, think I don't know. Is that you and me, that. honey? I, I mean, it's all of us, right? Yeah, it's all of us. We got to right. get our money stuff. Welcome in to the order. show, Peter. <laughs> Justin, Danielle, thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay, so I have to know on your website, you have this picture of you as a tiny little kid. Were you like the kid that was like always counting his money and like put saving away in the piggy bank and all that? I definitely took an early interest in money. And, um, you know, I think the first money memory I have is when I was at a pizza shop with my dad and mom and sister. And we used to play this game on the table uh, with three coins and it was like hockey. And I remember asking my dad, hey, can I have money for the jukebox? And he goes, well, is it worth your money? And I go, no. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying that because I see his money right there. He goes, well, then it's not worth mine. And I go, oh, shoot. And so we went to this place. <laughs> We were, <laughs> we were back there a week or two later and, you know, thinking I was smart, you know, I kind of said, Hey dad, can I have some money for the jukebox? He goes, is it worth your money? I said, yes. And he goes, great, go spend your own. And I go, Oh my gosh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that pretty clearly. And my parents didn't necessarily talk a lot about money, but it wasn't an off limits subject. And at a very young age, my grandmother gave me shares in Nike stock. And that's what really triggered a lot of the interest. And yes, I do think as I started working jobs, I remember working jobs, um, refing basketball games, keeping score, doing soccer games at age 12. But then by the time you're of, you know, 16 and get better jobs, waiting tables, doing car wash, I was totally that kid in my room, like counting the money um, on the floor, uh, watching the dollar stack higher and getting excited by that. Wow. You started nice. working when you were like 12. That's crazy. I, <laughs> yeah. I scored basketball games. So it wasn't exactly uh strenuous work, but a couple hours a week. Yeah. Um, there was a, a league just up the street and my parents did not seem to want to stop me from doing that. So yeah, I was really, I was interested. There wasn't a lot of work that you can find when you're under the age of 16, other than maybe doing some sort of thing alongside kids athletics. Yeah. Yeah. What part of the world did you grow up in, Peter? So I grew up in St. Louis, and I'm very proud to be raising my family here in St. Louis as well. We got some yeah. grandparents nearby to lend us extra helping hands, and it's oh. a wonderful place to raise a family. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, when you when you said uh, you used to line up your dollar bills on the floor and like count them out, you will be horrified at this, Peter. Okay, this is what I did when I was a teenager. What? What? Tell, you, tell your story. What are you pausing <laughs> for? Come on. I used to be the beer cart girl at the oh. golf course. <laughs> and so I would drive around and anybody would flag me over, sell them beer or whatever. So I would go home at the end of the night. It probably looked like I was some sort of a stripper or something. I had I mean, singles. you would show them a little leg. Uh, you know, it's a golf course. You got shorts on. Um, <laughs> but I would come home with just these wads of singles, like just tons of singles. And so, you know what I would do? I had a dresser 
And I would just, I, I didn't even have a container. I didn't have a bucket. I didn't have a bag. I had nothing. I didn't have a wallet. Y'all, this is such a deep insight into Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> I would just throw it up on the dresser. And then like, if I felt like going to spend something, I'd be like, oh, let me go see if my, I've still got enough money in my wad. And then I would just go up and just grab a handful and shove it in my pocket. <laughs> That's the trouble with cash jobs. Oh, Justin's in That's it, pretty it, much Danielle's financial philosophy today, too. <laughs> size just, of the pile, not value of the pile. Is that kind of what you went on? Uh, yeah, it was just like all about the volume, you know? Yeah. It was just like whatever felt oh, good is what gosh. I was going to do. Um, okay. We are in so much trouble. So when this explains a lot. Okay, so the, there was the pizza shop moment. Dad's trying to trick you, but you're trying to trick him back. But um, when did you kind of realize, hey, I might want to help other people with money too? So I think that... At a young age, I was pretty interested in stocks. Um, I had mentioned getting a stock for my birthday for my grandmother on my 12th birthday. And that stock would pay me money for doing nothing. It sent dividend checks. um, And that just fascinated me. And I'd look it up in the paper and it was always worth more. And so I knew that I wanted to do something in that arena from a pretty young age. And as I got older and learned what the different options were, what really appealed to me about the financial advice profession was it's a lot like a jigsaw puzzle and it can be solved and it doesn't have to be that complicated. Certainly, there's a lot of people out there who complicate it to make it seem they need your help or they, yeah. And then really for me, I think it's really fun to get in there and solve a problem, make life simpler and help people make more money more easily. I mean, when you can do one or all three of those things, it's a really rewarding thing. And, and, and I think as we focus on getting people's house in order here at PlanCorp, where I work um, every day, is that you can change the trajectory of someone's life. When you have financial optionality, you can take career risks, you can travel more, you can have sure. And I think those are all really tangible things. You know what your grandma would say? Your grandma would say, just do it. Just do it. Oh, geez. Come on. You knew Love that was going to come back, come right? On. Well, the huh. Nike reference joke. Well, uh, that was that pretty was good. Me. I like it. I don't know. I'm just wondering how freaking cool was your grandma that she gives you Nike stock? Did she even know what she was doing? I don't know that she knew that she was sending me on this path because she did it for my other cousins, uh, one of whom also ended up in finance, but the others didn't. That said, it was a really cool thing to bond with grandma over because I remember there's a a story of when I drew a picture. um, We were supposed to draw a picture. I think it was in first or second grade of things that you associate with your grandma and your grandpa. And when I drew it for my grandma, I drew an airplane because she was a travel agent. I drew a piece of paper that was supposed to be stocks because she talked about investing. And the part that horrified her, and she tells this story still, is I drew a, drew a slot machine because I knew that she loved going to the casino. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I exposed her guilty pleasure. I have definitely answered my question. Was she a crazy cool grandma? She was a flight attendant. 
stocks and she was a gambler. Yes, she was a crazy cool grandma. I think we have definitely checked that box. Um, oh here's, my gosh. That is so awesome. I already love your grandma. Okay, so here's my thought. You get, you start getting into this life of, you know, hey, I'm going to help other people with their finances. I know you met your lovely wife somewhere along this journey here. Yeah. Of course, since this is the Legendary Marriage Podcast, we have to know, I want to hear the story. How did you and your wife meet? So my wife and I met in Greencastle, Indiana at college. Um, we went to school at DePaul University, not to be confused with DePaul University in Chicago, uh, but DePaul University with a W. And um, we had a pretty shared set of friends. Um, we were friends and knew each other and really didn't start uh, dating seriously until after college. Um, she was a year in front of me. And so I remember after she graduated, she went to Honduras for a year to teach there. And yeah, we were friends. But when she came back, we were both originally from St. Louis and we started dating. And I remember we took a trip together and that sort of uh, catapulted us forward. And I think we got married in, oh, I don't think, I know we got married uh, in July 2010. It's a fuzzy day. I don't know. There was a lot of smiles, a lot of champagne. Actually got married on her birthday, which she didn't want to do, but logistically, because of some family stuff, it was the only option. Yeah. So every anniversary, I try to make it about her birthday, you know, because who wants their birthday overshadowed? Um, and yeah, so July um, in 2010, we got married and... Um, you know, we feel very fortunate to, I think if anything, if I did get a degree from DePaul University, but most importantly, I got my best friend and my life partner and oh, the mother of my children. So, I love um, that. I feel, I feel like a lot of people downplay the, uh, the whole like, hey, you're in college. You have all these people right there. They're your age. They've got your similar interests. Of course, meet your future husband or wife in college. And some people are too like, oh, I just want to hang out and, you know, whatever. No, you sound you it's sound like an pickings. old person talking. I about do this. sound like an old person, but as an old person, just go find your soulmate in chemistry class. <laughs> Actually, I used to have a crush on a guy. Okay, okay. moving right on. So, Peter. <laughs> You've written this amazing book, uh, and I got a chance to get an advanced copy of it, a uh, book called Making Money Simple. And um, we just wanted to kind of ask about that. Like, there, there's just, you cover all the basics in here in a really great way that, like, we're, we're old school Dave Ramsey fans from years ago. And, and like, so anything that uh, takes money and the issues around it for families and kind of delivers it to people with a no holds barred kind of clear way of talking about it, which, which the book does. Uh, I'm just excited to share about that. Okay. I want to know how does it play out with you and your wife? Like, did you guys um, get into the whole, okay, so you're married. How does it, do you take control of the finances or does she kind of say like, Oh, you do your thing and I'll do mine. Or how did it look like in the beginning? Well, I would say that every household has a CEO and a CFO, um, you know, a chief financial officer. I am definitely our chief financial officer. I don't think that I am our CEO though. Um, and I think it's really natural uh, in a relationship, if one of your spouses is a financial professional, that that person has the tendency to 
manage the finances. And I think one thing that was always really important to me from a very early stage is that she understood what I was doing and asked questions because when you're operating on your own without any sort of additional insight, you know, you can sometimes, uh, what seems like a good idea may actually be crazy when you start saying it out loud and sharing it with somebody uh. else. Um, <laughs> and even though I do it for a living, you know, I think it's, it's useful just because I know where all the money is and how it's being directed different places. The most important thing is that we have the same goals and um, what you get in the book is literally the blueprint that we used uh, right out of school. So our finances weren't combined out of school because you know, we were just dating and neither of us, you know, when we knew each other in college, I don't think either of us thought we were ever each other's future spouse, but, but, the I was always using the goal sheets. And once we were engaged, I introduced them to her so that, hey, even if I am moving the money around on behalf of the goals, let's make sure that I'm that we both have the same end goal in mind. And a lot of the steps I take through in the book outline those steps that you could totally do it yourself, particularly as you this this early stage, these worksheets that we lean on, um, you know, for the goal setting, for the where cash flow is coming from, from where you stand today, et cetera. You would not advise one spouse to just own all the money stuff and the other one to just say, Yeah, you got it handled. Like I don't I don't mind somebody owning it, but I, I would discourage uh, the person who doesn't own it from just saying whatever and ignoring it. Because look, you know, that spouse, something could happen to them. And similarly, I think there's a lot of statistics and surveys that show that marriages, you know, money issues are a big cause of marital problems. And, you know, there are simple rules you can put in place that just open the communication um, channels just to help people express themselves. And oftentimes when you start hiding things with money or when someone is caught off guard, then it, then there is a trust issue there. And even if it wasn't intended to be something that was misleading or, you know, lying about saying, if you didn't know about some sort of financial transaction or tendency. Well, were, was your spouse lying? Well, not necessarily, but if you were ignoring it and you never had a system for communicating with each other, then those doubts might creep in. And I think that's probably why um, you do see so many people say that money becomes a marital issue at a certain point, just because it is a very important topic to communicate on. And then once you doubt the communication lines on that, it might bleed into other areas of the marriage. Well, I think too, it's one of these things where either you think, well, yeah. obviously if you marry a financial advisor, you're probably like, well, you know, he knows what he's talking about. And you, it might be one of those things where you're willing to just say, like whether it's out of like a laziness thing or just in, in an honest effort to be like, okay, you work in your strength, honey. Like I totally trust you. Um, and then I'll just do what I'm strong in. And then I feel like after time goes by, it feels like one of those things where like, oh, what? Oh, I have an allowance now or whatever. Like, I feel like it starts out in a good place. Danielle and then, is... And then you get fired up about it because you're like, wait, what's... What, was I crazy on love juice when I put this system in place or what? <laughs> Danielle is an Enneagram 8 and hates being told what to do. Yes, I do. I do. Or even that. feeling like she's being told what to do. <laughs> Me too. Or thinking that maybe somebody might be thinking about potentially maybe telling her what to do. 
I'm glad let you me let me throw this out there. So while I clearly steer the ship of our finances, um, and the book is designed to be, you know, anybody can implement it. But at the end of the book, some more complicated things come up, and you might decide you need to hire a financial advisor. And while I am a certified financial planner and a CFA charter holder, you know, we decided to hire an advisor this year in part because, well, we're busy. We have two kids. There's this aspect of even though I know what to do, is there really time to do it? But then to bring an objective third party into the conversation and perhaps empower my wife to hear somebody push back on my ideas. And maybe there was this little inkling that she was thinking it too. Um, but what, you know, figured I'm so confident in the answer. So she doesn't raise it. And I think um, I'm fortunate that that my wife, Anne has been pretty outspoken when she's wondering, why are we doing this? That doesn't exactly make sense. And sometimes I'll explain it. And she goes, Oh, yeah. And other times I'll explain it. She'll be like, Nope, still doesn't make sense. Um, and so having that objective third party, who, uh, you know, can really push back on me has been super useful. Plus, I mean, and I'm biased. I think having a financial advisor is great. Having a life coach, having a marriage coach, having a fitness trainer. Um, you can wander through life aimlessly doing anything. But if you have someone providing constant feedback and guidance, like the, the outcome's going to be better. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah. And I feel like even, even though you are a finance guy and you obviously feel like, you know, you're like, I have these accreditations. I have this degree that says, I know what I'm talking about here, um, that you can still, you know, get some more people on your team. I feel like that is huge to be able to like, it's not even an ego thing too. Cause I feel like some people could let the ego thing get in their way, whether it's, they want to work on their money or their, you know, yeah. their, their marriage or whatever it is and just say, Oh, you know, we're smart enough. We can figure it out. You know, we've, you know, uh, well, I think in any area of life, the people who think they've got it all figured out, they can do it all themselves. They can bootstrap their way to success versus the people who get coaching and counseling and help and advising and mentoring, uh, the latter will win out over the former. That was easy to say. Um, I'm wondering, so in your book, you talk about like basically getting a reality check of like the scene, like where are you today? And I feel like that could be like even one of the most uh, frustrating steps I mean, is to tough. just, yeah, it's tough. Like I know that like I will own this. This is my confession. I can go into denial stage where like, Hey, as long as the lights are still she on. She admits it. She admits it. As long as the That's lights. That's on tape. I've got that on tape. <laughs> as long as the lights are still on, the car's still running, you know, we're doing good. Um, but I feel like it'd be really painful to get the whole lay of the landscape financially. You're right. And while I mentioned the goals are kind of the first step and really important, if you don't know where you are, it's really hard to get to where you're trying to go. And most financial decisions, when you have a good understanding of where you are, which I kind of more technically define as like, what's your net worth? Like, what what do you own? What do you owe? And what are you earning and what's going out on a regular basis? You know, then when you're making big financial decisions, you can ask yourself, how will this affect my net worth over time? Is this going to be something that helps build my wealth over time? And secondly, how is this decision going to impact my goals? And so it gives you a framework for thinking about things 
that can have a lot of different moving parts. And when you can just boil it down to two simple worksheets, it makes it much easier to make an informed decision and feel really confident going forward. Because I think there's a real big opportunity when you make any sort of decision to feel regret. And I think um, that's a human tendency. It's perfectly normal. And you're not going to eliminate it, but find a way to minimize regret and the intentionality behind establishing where you are today and where you're trying to go will really eliminate a lot of those uncertainties. Well, you, you speak to the negative feelings that you have, like you can, that can come up during the money conversations. I feel like the more often you have those type of conversations, um, the less it's going to have, like, like you said, regret, resentment, you know, all those types of things. And now we interrupt this episode of the Legendary Marriage Podcast to bring you a word from our sponsors, us. <laughs> All right. So we know that communication is the hardest part of marriage, right? Yeah. And the story goes something like this. You talk about the bills, the crushing the chores, keeping the kids alive. But it feels like you become really good roommates, yeah. not the soulmates you were when you got married. Maybe the busyness of life and the trials and challenges of raising a family have just worn you down. Maybe you're just more comfortable having transactional conversations instead of passionate, transformational, exciting ones. Oh, the good news is that by making seven small shifts, you can get on the same page and have conversations that matter and then infuse more intimacy and connection into your marriage. Oh yeah. So what are those shifts? We've spent more than a decade researching and working with couples to distill down the seven most powerful shifts that couples can make to build more intimacy and connection. Nobody else is teaching this stuff at any price. And this free resource is available now at legendarymarriage.com slash seven secrets, the number seven secrets. And the good news is you can make these shifts, just break out of that roommate zone and transform your marriage without making your spouse sit through some boring workshop, endless counseling sessions, or sitting knee to knee naked in some weird sweat lodge, braiding each other's hair and holding hands while a bunch of people sit around staring at you singing Kumbaya. Was that just us? That did Awkward. That? <laughs> so grab this free resource today at legendarymarriage.com slash seven, the number secrets and start building a life, a love and legacy together today. And now back to the show. Can you tell me about a special type of date that you have with your wife? Yes, it's super unromantic, but my <laughs> wife and I <laughs> twice a year go on a money date and we bring our worksheets to the restaurant. We do not order alcohol, even though that's a staple in food group for us. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> and um, we start with the goal sheet and we go through and we say, hey, are these still what's important to us? And how's our progress going? And is, are there changes? Has something changed in our world where, you know, did you get access to a new retirement plan? Okay. So we need to add that because we definitely want to take advantage of that. Or, oh gosh, you know, the car it's had a lot of repairs or actually here's a real life one. Our refrigerator is totally on the fritz. Like we now know we're going to be spending money on. Yeah. We're going to be spending money on a refrigerator. And I'll tell you right now, that's not on the short-term goal list, but a refrigerator can be, you know, thousand, two thousand dollars. And so yeah, as well start setting that money aside. And so I bet by the next money date, assuming the, the refrigerator can last that long, we'll add that to the short term goal. Why not just set that money aside now? And then 
okay, well, we'll look at our cash flow worksheet and we'll look at our net worth worksheet. And for me and us in particular, because I am steering the financial ship, so to speak, it gives me an opportunity to say, Hey, so remember like, this is where all of our money goes into. And then it goes out to these different accounts. And here's how much is left over every month to direct towards these goals. And if there's a new goal or a goal changes, or we decide we want to pay down a debt faster or save more into an investment account, that's the opportunity to express that. And I think it allows us to both just get on the same page. A lot of times people don't have the same priorities and the goal worksheets that I have, um, it's at peterlazaroff.com slash worksheets. That really allows you to be intentional and set up the short-term goals that are truly kind of budgeted in. It's like an automatic, I call it a reverse budget in the book. Your savings are just going to fund those goals. And those are goals less than five years, but the intermediate term goals that are five to 15 years long, or the long-term goals that are 15 or more years away, it's not so much about strategically hitting a very perfect savings numbers, but those ones tend to really highlight what you value in life most. And when you guys get on the same page, it makes it all a lot easier. And then circling way back to when I say you have a big financial decision, you can ask those two simple questions. How will this impact my goals? And how will this impact my net worth trajectory? And as you're setting goals or talking about expenses, you can have things that set back your net worth. I mean, you go on a vacation, that's going to be a ding to your net worth. But boy, is that a meaningful experience in your life. Whereas, um, you know, as you talk about buying different types of cars or different types of homes or different types of refrigerators, you might suddenly consider, well, if we buy this refrigerator, then we can't do this. Um, There's a lot of research out there. And I share some in the book about how experiential purchases have far lasting, uh, far more lasting happiness than just material stuff. And there's a lot of research on the type of car you buy and the type of house you buy. And uh, fortunately, when we have these genuine discussions and we understand what's going to give us true happiness from our spending, these money dates give us a framework for a safe place to talk about the changes that we want to make. Uh, and then also just kind of level set and get some expectations of what's months to come. Now, we used to have a rule that when we spent, I think, over $250, we just let each other know. Um, and that wasn't like a policing mechanism, but it was more, Hey, just, you know, like big amount of money came out today for X, Y, Z. Cool. No problem. Um, because, of uh, parenting life often, I don't remember what I spent money on that day, nor does she. And so it does give us a chance to like, look through, um, we use, uh, both mint and bright plan to kind of look through transactions and say, Oh, there was a big one. Oh, that was for this. Like just to kind of go through. Yeah. And we may see silly purchases and we're like, Hey, what's that subscription by the way? Yeah, we don't really use that anymore. Let's get rid of that. So the money date, you know, doesn't always end in a night of passion. Uh, sometimes it can end in a disagreement <laughs> about something. Um, after, after you're done with the budgeting part, then can you order like a dessert wine or something? Oh yeah. Clear the palate. Yeah, it it's all good. Yeah. And I think the the money dates over time have become essential once you're a parent because it's hard to carve out that time. And sometimes you get time away from the kids and you feel like you should use it to have fun. And you should. I mean, you should find time to do that. But if you don't set aside the time to take care of your finances, then you're going to make mistakes along the way. And the decisions you both make and the decisions you don't make will compound over your life to 
they seem small in the moment, but they compound into incredibly yeah. large, impactful things in the long run. Now you said something about like, oh, that it pops up, like there's a subscription. Like I know we do like Hulu and Netflix and, you know, now you have a lot of subscriptions for things like that. And I'm pretty sure we probably have subscriptions to things. Didn't at one time we had like two subscriptions to like Amazon Music or something. And we were like, wait, what? What's going on here? I and I don't know. even... So um, how how do you find the balance between like, is automation or is subscription, you know, the automatic withdrawal thing? Is that something that you should lean into or not? I am a huge proponent of automation. Um, a lot of our human instincts are the complete opposite as to what you need to do to make good money decisions. That's very, very true in investing, but it's also with the way that we consume. Um, our brains are lazy. They jump to quick conclusions and we actually think of saving um, are the way the neural patterns, there's research of neural patterns. When you think about saving for the future it is identical to handing your money to a complete stranger. Mm. And so that puts us at a disadvantage. If we think of saving Whoa. for the future as just giving away your money, you know, that's something you have to correct for with automation. I think what it acknowledges, unlike a lot of things is you're never going to take the human nature out of humans, but when you automate, you can work around it and you can eliminate forgetfulness. You can eliminate the temptation to consume. And man, are there endless, uh, you know, people, advertisers literally follow you around the internet these days, the way that stores place things, the way that social media influences yeah. our con consumption habits. By automating your savings, you never have the opportunity to decide not to do it. Um, automating investments is even more important because the emotions that fly from when markets go down and you lose money, you know, the type of errors you make can be very, very costly. And the more automated you can make that system is even more important. But I believe in leaning into the automation that said, you do have to check up on it. So the subscription model, that's why companies like it because they know they can get you on there and have you never think about it again. It just comes right out of your paycheck, just like your 401k, you know, contribution your Apple Music, your Amazon Prime, your Hulu, your Netflix, whatever comes right out of your paycheck effectively. And so there are exercises um, you can do, for example, if you realize you don't have enough cash flow to meet all your short-term goals. One of my favorite, um, and this can be done on a money date, it can be done otherwise. We do this with clients where you print off a transaction list and both spouses would do have their own separate list and you go down and assign high value, low value, no value. And anything where you both have no value well, let's go ahead and cut that. In subscriptions, they're at low value. Excuse me. Yeah, you cut all the no values. If you see subscriptions at low values, that's usually a good, easy place to cut. And, you know, there you're not, in this exercise, it's less about cutting back on expenses and more reordering expenses to align with your priorities, which I think yeah. is what people want in the end of things. And yeah. then you look at some of the transactions and you're like, wait, what? Why did I even do that? And who is that? And how, <laughs> who did I pay? And why did I spend $80 well, at Target? It's so tough. <laughs> what I, I was going to say, Target and Amazon are impossible. You don't remember what you purchased. Oh my up. gosh, yeah. Or, or like the 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 charges, like you're going scrolling through the banking app or whatever, and you're like, okay, you're checking it out. And it's like, Slurp flicking garden button get parsnick 4813 9 FD for $19.83. And you're like, 
What? They probably do that. Can't they just say gas station? No, they do that on purpose. So did you. <laughs> okay. It's a conspiracy. I know. Well, you spoke a little bit about the like the market and some investments and you know, like obviously it's a volatile kind of place. It can be up, it can be down. As of recording today, the markets are, I mean, still very high. But but who also knows? down like six or 800 points or something like that. But, but how, what are kind of the basic uh, advice that you would give to financial dum-dums like us? I, I'm not going to look, don't call me a dum-dum. Okay. If you want to be a dum-dum, you can be a dum-dum. <laughs> Novice. Novice. There we novice. go. Novice. There we go. Financial novices or people who are just learning, just trying to learn a little bit more. What do we need to know about the markets? So I think the most important thing to know is that the markets are very smart and you will not outsmart them. Um, the way that markets work is basically there are millions of people trading every day and setting prices. And if you think you know something that collectively the millions of people trading every day doesn't know, you are not going to have a successful investing experience. If you read something in the paper or talked to a friend or read a blog post and suddenly think you have this unique idea, you don't. And uh, <laughs> is there a website that you're particularly calling out right now? No, I mean, lots of websites. Yeah, well, okay. Okay, (laughs) well, you can go down that road. There there certainly are lots of people, you know, who want you to pay attention to them. And so they make stock picks, they make fund picks, whatever. But generally speaking, the research is overwhelming that no one can predict the future and that good investing simply comes down to minimizing mistakes and getting the heck out of the way of compound interest. And so there's a lot of ways that people interrupt compound interest. They trade too frequently. They move in and out of the markets. They try to time when to enter and when to get out. Uh, They pay too much in fees. They are overconfident in general. The list, I mean, we could talk for hours on the way that we are just completely flawed investors, um, you know, our DNA, uh, the makeup just isn't correct for good investing. Now, I think a lot of times for people, if they're unsure what they're doing, um, one resource that I worked hard on building out is something called smartmoneyquiz.com, which can kind of identify areas where you ought to be focusing that first. But on the investment side, the key is to minimize mistakes. And how do you do that? I think you get a good advisor. But I will say in the book, I do point you in the right direction if you don't want to go that route. Um, I do highlight these areas where people make mistakes, but the more you can automate, the more you can make fewer decisions. Because if you make more decisions, then that's just more opportunities to make mistakes. Um, Just getting really thoughtful on the front end and then trying to stick with it as long as humanly possible. That's, That's generally what breeds success. And I think people would be surprised to learn how simple a solution you need on the investment end. Yeah. to be successful. I think most people assume investing is complex, so it must need a complex solution. That is absolutely not the case. That actually might have been the case like 20 years ago when there was less options out there, but the marketplace has changed. There are really good tools and vehicles available to people, even if they're not using an advisor. But advisors have benefited from it as well because it allows them to deliver a better experience to their clients. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like over time, uh, financial investing has become a little bit more tangible. Like I remember in years, like 
when we were just first out of college and things like that, and, you know, we were trying to decide like, what do we do with money that, what do we do with our giant wad that's on our dresser? <laughs> like there were like these commercials with like big ships or something, or, you know, yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah, it felt very, and you're like, very, what um, does this even mean? I don't even know what they're yeah, telling me. It, it felt like a different, <laughs> like elitist. And I don't, yeah. I don't mean that word. It's not the right word. But like out of out of my reach, and I was just like, I, well, I don't have a giant pirate ship, so I'm I'm just gonna. I don't I don't even know what that means. Yeah, whatever whatever the guy that they bring in at the office has to. Okay, yeah, whatever, just do it, just just do it. You know, the attitude when you're starting out is just like, oh, sure, yeah, we need invest for retirement. That's great, or you know, save some money. That's great. Just just do it. I, I don't want to know. Like just. <laughs> Just Make take, something just happen. The, the, Hopefully it's good. <laughs> just take my $20 a month or whatever. <laughs> and, $20. And make me millions with it. I just, just Take Daniel's wad on top of the dresser. That's yeah. right. That's right. If there's enough in the wad, just take it and then invest it. See, now that's a personal goal <laughs> is I want to, I want to just take, go in and meet with Peter someday, <laughs> like next year and just take a duffel bag full of crumpled up hundred dollar bills. No ones. No hundreds. Oh, that would be nice. Just a duffel bag full of hundreds. He's like, dude, what, what should we do? Yeah. Cause it'll be a great story for his next book. There you go. Is if I can, I will actually say that I've had a client experience where they brought in duffel bags of money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Are, are you safe to admit this? Like, can people I, hear this story? I think you were safe to admit it because we never took custody. So the big thing in our business, you're not allowed to take custody of people's money. <laughs> um, and the client wanted to distribute it at a funeral. And they wanted to give everybody who attended the funeral some, you know, a cash gift. Uh, and But they wanted us to hold on to it. We said, oh, no. like we We're can't not a bank. <laughs> and I won't tell you how much money it was or what denominations the bills were, but it was a large amount. It was like a movie heist. Like it looked like- You it, know what? <laughs> they probably found the pirate ship. No, no, no. D.B. Cooper's- uh, the Treasure. Yeah. That's what that pirate ship is in that commercial. That's where the money is. They're on a pirate <laughs> Anyway. Well, I'm sure if anybody ever wants to work with us, you don't need a pirate ship. But if you have a pirate ship, we would love to go on it. <laughs> okay. We'll take the kids out for a ride. Oh my gosh, this all sounds like so much fun. All right, Peter, so, so how can... Wait, wait, wait. wait. Like I wanted, to, I wanted to dig in this last piece that we wanted to, to ask about is like in the book, you talk about the the family finances and combining and there's there's kind of three ways of looking at that. And I wanted you to just kind of lay that out for us. Sure. Well, so when you're newly married, or even if you've been married for a while, and you're unsure that the way that you guys divvy up or combine finances is appropriate, just recognize one, there is no one size fits all advice for this. But there are three frameworks that I see most frequently that are great starting points um, for a discussion, and then you kind of customize it based on your life. And so the first one is um, just everything together. You'll just joint finances. It's real simple. Everything goes into the same pot. Y'all share expenses. No questions asked. It's real simple. Um, the other extreme is when you do everything totally separate, where you each take your income and you put them into your own separate accounts and you divvy up expenses where one person pays the mortgage and the other person pays for groceries. And a lot of people um, who go that way find it gets increasingly complicated as your family grows or as there's more income disparity. Um, so I don't see a lot of people do that, but it is a starting point for some. And um, uh, 
third option is more of a hybrid model. Um, and there's actually two hybrid models. One is the fixed, uh, the fixed dollar model where you will say, let's say each spouse is bringing home, I don't know, $5,000 a month, and you're each going to put $4,000 of your $5,000 into a joint pot, and you're each going to keep $1,000 yourself separately to spend as you choose. Um, a kind of hybrid of that, another hybrid model is the hybrid percentage where you each choose to put 80% of your income into the joint pot and 20% into your personal pots. And these can work depending on, you know, the income disparity or the desire to have your own pot of money that, you know, there's really no questions asked. Like if I, I remember my wife coming home with a pair of socks and it was, I don't know, it's like a $30 pair of socks. I was like, how can you, what, what pair of socks in this universe cost $30? And that was the point in time when we decided to make sure we had some slightly different pots of money because I didn't want to judge her for her expensive stocks stocks, socks. She had bought extensive stocks. That would have been okay. But the socks, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, like, were they orthopedic socks? Were they I honestly they don't were, remember. They were Nike socks. I'm so betting. We, I, no, 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 no. Like I, I have a bet. I have a bet. Peter, I'm betting there were those fancy socks with like the frilly lace on the top that the, the ladies wear underneath the tall boots. Yeah, those are pretty nice. I got a pair of those you know, for you on Christmas. They were, I know. They were expensive. I know. We they both are. agree. This story happened probably over 10 years ago because we've been married nine years and it was while we were dating. And I remember she will. She agrees that this happened and it was socks. We disagree on what the price was that drove me crazy. Um, but that was the moment <laughs> that we, knew we were going to have need to have some separate piles of money. And it is nice for gift giving purposes you know, because I see all the finances. If she ever buys me a gift, I won't notice. Uh, but you know, those four models, either choosing to combine it all, keep it totally separate or doing this hybrid approach tends to be a good starting place. I see most couples that we start with who are newly married or have only been married for a handful of years tend to trend towards these hybrid models. And if you start with the, we're going to put 80 or 90% of our income into a joint pile and keep the other percentages separate. That works pretty well if your incomes are close. Um, yeah. The fixed dollar model works a little bit better if you you know decide how much you each get for your personal accounts and pour in if there's big income spread between the two spouses. Yeah. Okay. So the socks thing aside, what do you love most about your wife? Oh my gosh. What a great question. Um, my <laughs> wife... I'm actually, can I give you two things? Yeah. Okay. So my wife calls me out and she's brutally honest and she keeps me honest uh, on a lot of fronts. And I think I would have never grown as a person if she wasn't um, critical of, you know, choices I make professionally, personally, um, as a husband, as a father, you know, she gives me the tough love when I need it to be a better person. And I don't think I'd be that person today. So that is highly appreciated. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, that's the first thing that actually came to mind, but she has always been very adventurous and an activity person. And I love that because otherwise I just sit around on the couch all day. Whereas when we go on vacation, we have activities nonstop and on Saturdays and Sundays, like we know what's going on around town. We are always out doing stuff. And she loves getting out of the house. And uh, I feel like I'd live a way more boring life without her uh, doing that for us. Oh, I love that. I love That's it so awesome. much. All right. Last question, man. What does it take to build a legendary marriage? Mm. Wow. I think yeah. honesty in communication. I can't swear that we have a marriage that's any better than anyone else's. And I think the the most 
challenging part of being married is when you have a family and suddenly you're responsible for other lives. And um, we got married when we were relatively young, mid twenties, and we've certainly grown since then. And I think the, when our communication is open, our marriage is stronger. And so I think that would definitely be the thing for me. Oh, I love it. I love it. Honest and transparent. Peter, thank you so much. All right. I want to know, you had said a lot about different worksheets that you like to use. Let us um, give our listeners a little uh, hint into where we can find those worksheets and your book and what you're doing. I think the easiest way to find things is to go to smartmoneyquiz.com because that will identify what worksheets are most important to you and highlight what you're doing well and what you're not doing well. Smartmoneyquiz.com, it's just nine questions real fast and easy, and I'll deliver you valuable things in response. Um, you can find the book really anywhere you can buy books, but it is cheapest on Amazon. So why not? So why not go there? Uh, if we're talking about making good money decisions, might as well buy where it's cheapest. Um, right. Making money simple. That's right. Yeah, follow me anywhere, social media at Peter Lazaroff. Um, and you know, if people have questions, reach out anytime. I answer any email I ever receive. So okay. I hope to hear from everyone. Awesome. Okay. Well, again, it's the book is Making Money Simple by Peter Lazaroff. You can get it all the best places. And uh, we'll have all the links and, and things in the show notes. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been it's been a blast, man. Yeah. Danielle, Justin, thank you so much. Been great. All right. What a great conversation. And now the talk about it segment of the show. Each week we challenge you to set a time with your spouse to have a conversation that matters. All right. Here's your conversation starter question. What topic do you wish you could talk about? When it comes to money. Okay. We know there's oh, like, always... like in the area of money, what's the conversation you want to have? Is it retirement? Ooh. Is it uh, the grocery budget? Mm-hmm. Is it buying a new car? Mm. Um, what are those hot button topics within money that ooh, are a little scary mm-hmm. and you wish you could talk more about? Have that out with your spouse. Have a money date and Don't give me a out. weird look. I, feel, I have a feeling you have something on the tip of your tongue that you want to say. No. No, No. I'm good. You're good? All right. That's it for today's show. You can grab your copy of The Seven Secrets of Legendary Marriages over at legendarymarriage.com slash the number seven secrets. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show so we know how we're doing and other couples can find us. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Legendary Marriage Podcast. This is Danielle and Justin. Reminding you. Don't settle for an ordinary marriage. Make yours legendary. Legendary.